Today's scripture reading comes from Revelations chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, and can be found on page 872 of your pew Bible. Revelations, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every tribe, people, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Just a word before we go into the uh, text. Um, It wasn't uh, Cindy's idea uh, to share with you this morning. It it, it turns out, you know, it was Orphan Sunday, and she had emailed me and Irene to ask us to pray for her. And uh, then I said, well, look, if it's Orphan Sunday, maybe you should invite the congregation to pray for you. And, of course, we're not really predominantly praying for Cindy, as moving as that is. We're really praying for the orphans. And we're praying to see what role we might play in the care of orphans. In any event, thank you, Cindy. Now, today's passage, isn't this just delicious? You know, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and count the worshipers but exclude the outer court. You know, there were two olive trees and two lampstands, and they have power to shut up the sky so it won't rain, and power to turn water into blood, and whatever is going on here. This is probably the densest passage of the New Testament that I've, it was certainly the densest that I can remember coming across. The author, John, is throwing in all manner of, to us, obscure references to the Old Testament. And they're coming in a fast and furious pace. 
And he doesn't tell his readers about it. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. You know, he makes reference to eight chapters of Ezekiel in one half of a sentence. And he doesn't tell it. He makes references to, we'll see, to Elijah, to Moses, to the high priest Joshua, and to the prince Zerubbabel. He throws all that in there. Because he know, I mean, they know the Old Testament. He knows it as the, as the author. And then he figures they know it, and we, and we don't. So we're going to skim through a fair bit of this this morning. You'll have to take my word for it because I'm not going to take you back to Ezekiel. I'm not going to take you back to Zechariah 4. We're not going to go back to 1 Kings 17 and 18. We're not going to go back, you know, but it's in the devotional. But what I do want to do at least is is to unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Because it addresses a, a crucial issue. Not in our lives, but a crucial issue in our understanding of God. And a crucial issue for the church of God. First, let's to acclimate ourselves to the issue. I begin with a story that Max Lucado tells. Now, Max Lucado, if you haven't seen his books, is full of wonderful stories, a lot of uh, powerful illustrations, best-selling books. And he tells the story of Kyle Sheets and Heather Sample, father and son, father and daughter, adult daughter, both medical doctors, both surgeons both with a heart for the poor and the underprivileged overseas. So both, every year they would take time off during the summer and take time off from their careers and spend two or three weeks overseas uh, serving as surgeons to an area where there was desperate need. So the story has them situated in Zimbabwe, working among AIDS patients. And one day, as they met for lunch, the daughter looked at her father and saw a cut on his hand. In surgery that day, he'd cut his hand while operating on a patient with AIDS. Now, she's a doctor. He's a, you know, he didn't, she wanted him to start immediately on the medication, the antiretroviral medicine. But he didn't want to because that was going to impede his ability. At least at that stage of development, the reactions were so severe. For one thing, the medication could end up killing him. But in the meantime, it was going to really incapacitate him from working on the other patients. But she insisted. And so he started the medication. With hours, he was violently ill. He got so bad that they had to move their airplane flight up so they could leave the country and get him treatment. By the time he was on the plane, his temperature was over 104. He was, uh, he was shaking and, you know, the, the pilots actually had to be, they had to plead with the pilots to let them stay on the plane. Because she said, if we don't fly back, he'll die. Certainly. So as they sat on the plane, her father beside her, finally the father dozed off and she went back to the bathroom to throw up out of anxiety. And she said, it says here, she slumped on the floor of the bathroom, all right, (laughs) I mean, in a fetal position, wept and prayed. And she prayed simply this, I need help. She was in the bathroom so long, somebody knocked on the door and said, are you okay? Do you need help? So she opened the door and there were four men standing there. And she said, no, I'm okay. I'm a doctor. I can look after myself. And they said, oh, we're doctors too. In fact, we're coming back from a medical conference and there's a hundred of us doctors on the plane. So she told them what was going on with her father. And they said, oh, look, 
you're worn out. You need to rest. Uh, we'll look after your father. And one of them was a specialist, had far more expertise in her, than her in infectious diseases. And they looked after her father and she went back and slept. And when she woke up, her father was much better, uh, still serious condition, but much healthier. And, the, and she was recovered, you know, much uh, more energized. And Max Ricardo draws this lesson. Heather began to recognize God's hand at work. He had placed them on exactly the right plane with exactly the right people. God had met their need with grace. And this is part of the message of the gospel. That when we're in desperate straits, serving him, even on a short-term mission, that when we're in desperate straits, he jumps in and he bails us out. So Max Lucado goes on and applies that to our lives. At exactly the right time, God had met their need with grace. He'll meet your need as well. Perhaps your journey is difficult. God's grace will sustain you. God's grace will sustain you through cancer in the body, through sorrow in the heart, through having a child in rehab, or through bankruptcy, through a felony on your record, through a craving for whiskey in the middle of the night, through tears when joy cannot come. God will sustain you. And this is indeed a crucial part of the gospel. But this morning we're going to look at another part of the gospel. What happens when you're on that plane with a dying father and he doesn't provide a hundred doctors? Five years ago, in Turkey, there was a bookstore and a small publishing house run by Christians that were in Turkey in order to uh, spread the gospel quietly, discreetly. And they were meeting with a group of seekers, people who had come to learn more about Jesus, come from a Muslim background. It turned out that they weren't genuine seekers after all. They were crazed radicals. And one day after the Easter Sunday worship, they came and they made an appointment with these three workers, two Turks and one German, and they met an appointment with these three. And they said, look, we want to know more about the gospel. So they met up at the bookstore, at the publishing house. And these seven or eight seekers, purported seekers, came in. And they locked the door from the inside. And then for the next three hours, uh, they tortured uh, the Christian workers. Finally, one of their friends realized, well, you know, we haven't seen them in a while. We, you know, they had an appointment or something, and they went down. Three hours later, at 12.30, they went to the shop and tried to get in. They couldn't get in. The key wouldn't work. They figured something was up. They called the police. And as the police came, then the uh, lunatics uh, slit the three throats. But by that point, it would have been a time of great relief to have died. What do we say? You know, we're not going to face it. 
If worse comes to worse and some of us become missionaries and go overseas to a third world, well, to a, to a nation that's hostile, doesn't have to be third world, to a nation that's hostile to the gospel, and we get caught evangelizing, you know what happens to foreigners. They don't get martyred. They get deported. And the local church has to face it. What does the gospel say to people when God doesn't deliver them from the crisis? That's the issue that the text in front of us faces. You know enough about Revelation by this point to realize that there's been persecution of the church in Revelation. And they've called out in chapter 6, how long, sovereign Lord? Lord, you're powerful. You control the world. How long? Holy and just. Will we suffer? In, how long until you revenge? And God said, a little while longer. Until all those who are called to die have died. And then I'll intervene. And then this passage takes us into the middle of some of that. Because here the passage tells us about two people. Perhaps they've already died. The author doesn't tell us. Or perhaps he's anticipating that they are soon going to die. But it tells us, take a look at verse 7. This is page 872, Revelation 11, page 872. Revelation 11, verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. Two witnesses. Probably two people. We're not even sure about that. So many numbers are symbolic in Revelation. It could be two churches. It could be a group of people. But, but the number two is not normally symbolic in Revelation. Maybe three is symbolic. 777, seven, a thousand. These are symbolic numbers. Probably two people. I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And then in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and conquer them and kill them. Now, from this time frame, you know, from two centuries later, and from such a distance, martyrdom is a hugely... I mean, if you're young and idealistic, martyrdom is something you aspire to, you know. I mean, this is noble, you know. In our revisionist perspective, in our revisionist history, we look at martyrs and we say, how brave and how noble. I wish I could be that brave when it comes time for me, if it ever comes time for me. Martyrdom is something we aspire to. But in the midst of it, martyrdom is never something people aspire to. Martyrdom is something that people fear with every ounce of their being, and it's not just the individual. What about the church? Why does any government martyr leaders? Why does any government martyr missionaries or bishops or local, local pastors? You kill a flea with a cannon to scare all the other fleas. You, you brutalize a couple of leaders in the hopes of suppressing everybody. And so here are two who either two leaders who've already died or two leaders who John anticipates are going to die. And the issue is not just for the two of them. The issue is for the church. When the leaders are being killed, what will happen to God's church? So Revelation 11 verses 1 to 14 deals with this question. And he gives, I would summarize it as four basic responses. We're going to look through each of those four now as we go.
His first response is this. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar. Count the worshipers that are gathered inside that temple. But don't count the outer court. Do not measure it, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Whoa. You know, what's all that about? Here it is. This whole idea of measuring the... Okay, it's, it, consider our property here. You know, the temple, the outer courts, and so forth. So consider the temple, say, would be the, the sanctuary proper. And then the outer courts would be all the land around us. And what uh, John is doing here is he's recalling Ezekiel 40 to 48. We won't look at it today. But similar language had been used in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And the point of it there was this. God measured the temple, men. God measured. God was guaranteeing the preservation of the temple and the people inside the temple. But the outer courts had been given to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were over, going to overrun it. What his point is this. The outer courts God is not guaranteeing. The inner sanctuary he is guaranteeing. That's all a metaphor to say this. Some people are going to die. Their enemies are going to have chance. The church's enemies are going to have the opportunity to slap them around. To slap the church around. The outer courts will be overrun. People are going to die. There's going to be danger. There's going to be harm. There's going to be people hurt. But he says, the core. I will preserve the core. I won't preserve the whole, but I will preserve the core. I have measured the temple. This is my area. I will protect this area. I will protect these people in it. It's all metaphorical. What he's saying is this. I have control and I will protect the church. I won't necessarily protect everybody. Some of this sacred territory, the outer court, will be lost, will be overrun. Only for a time, but it will be overrun and people will die. But he says, my church will not die. I have measured the sanctuary and I've counted the people. The enemy may clamber at the doors. They may beat it around the edges. But God will preserve his people and his church. Secondly, verses 4 to 6. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. These men have the power to shut up the sky. They have the power to turn the waters into blood. He turns from considering the church as a whole to considering the two people. Now, let's work through these three references in reverse. Because you'll know the later ones better than you know the earlier ones. These men have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. A lot of you can figure out that illusion. They can turn water into blood. They can call down plagues. What's the illusion there? Who did that? Yeah, Moses. He's saying these people, these, these witnesses, I've, they're in the long tradition characterized by Moses. And then how about this? Who shut up the sky, verse 6a? Who shut up the sky so it wouldn't rain? Who's that a reference to? A little bit harder. Elijah. These people are like Moses. These witnesses, they're like, they're like Elijah. And how about this? There are two olive trees in 
two lampstands. I couldn't get that without a commentary. Maybe some of you know the Bible better than I do. Zechariah chapter 4. After Israel had been dragged into exile, and then God had delivered it from exile and called up two leaders to, to, to lead Israel as it tried to rebuild, as it tried to reestablish itself in the land, he called up the high priest Joshua. He called up the prince Zerubbabel, a religious leader and a political leader. And he called them to lead the people and deliver them from exile, establish them in the new land, bring God's blessing down on the nation. So the first thing the author of Revelation is telling us is this. Some people will die, but I will preserve my church. Not every individual in it. Some of them will suffer. But my church will survive. And then he says, these witnesses, they will be heroes. They're heroes in the tradition of Moses, who saved God's people from Israel, from, from Egypt. They are heroes in the tradition of Elijah, who saved God's people from themselves, as almost the whole nation turned to worship Baal. And Elijah called them back to God. They will be heroes in the tradition of Joshua and Zerubbabel, who helped the nation rebuild after exile and destruction. He says, first of all, the church will survive. It'll be beaten around, but it'll survive. And these people, he says, I will empower them for their task. They will be heroes. There is a discontinuity, though, between Moses and Elijah and Joshua and Zerubbabel and these two witnesses. Because Moses lived and succeeded. Elijah lived and succeeded. Joshua lived and succeeded. Zerubbabel lived and succeeded. They were heroes. They were successful. They brought victory and blessing to the nation. We find out, though, that the witnesses are going to die. And, and the author addresses that as the third point in verses 7 to 10. When they have finished the testimony, a beast will come up from the abyss. Satan will rise from the depths of hell, and he will attack them. And he will conquer them. And he will kill them. And not, not satisfied just to kill them, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Men from around the world, every people and tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial in the greatest, gravest insult that the ancient world know. Not only will they be killed, they'll be left for their bodies, for the scavenging animals and birds to nibble on in the streets. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. So eventually these heroes in the line of Moses and Elijah and Joshua and Zerubbabel, eventually they'll be killed. What does John say about it? They were powerful witnesses. That's a positive. God will preserve his church. That's a positive. They're powerful witnesses, like Moses and Elijah and Joshua's rebel. They're powerful, strategic, and that's a positive. But they die. In the end, they die. And the church is left harassed and scared. What will become of the rest of us? Notice the phrase, 
that John starts with in verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, when their job is done, when their task is complete, God says, I have control even over this. I have control even over the time and the manner of their deaths. And they will die. But I will protect them until their job is done. And only when their job is done, their task is over. Only when they've preached the gospel, only when I'm ready to welcome them home, then they'll come. Their enemies will kill them. But their enemies can't kill them without my permission. Their enemies can't kill them before my time. So God promises to protect the church. He promises to empower the witnesses. He promises to control the outcome, the life, and the death of those witnesses. And he promises one more thing in verses 11 to 13. Remember in Revelation 6, they had asked, the martyrs had asked, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our deaths? And now in 11 to 13, God promises that he will set all wrongs right. He will honor these witnesses and he will avenge their death. Take a look at verse 11. After three and a half days, again a symbolic number, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered these dead witnesses, these martyrs. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish Christian philosopher, put it like this. The tyrant dies and his rule is over. The martyr dies and his rule begins. God says after their death and after their humiliation, God says, I will raise them. I will raise them to life. I will exalt them to heaven. They will sit on my throne forever. They will reign with me, with Christ. And then in verse 13, At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. God says, I will set things right. First, I will exalt these martyrs who've died for me into heaven to reign with me. And then he says, I will punish that city. I will punish that people that destroy them. God doesn't wipe out the city. He still, in his infinite patience, leaves opportunity for repentance. But he grabs their attention through a severe earthquake. A tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people die. There was an article in the paper, oh, in Time Magazine this week, October 31st. October 31st was the 20th anniversary of the killing of five American nuns in Liberia. 1992. Five nuns, now these nuns, they were dangerous, you know. These nuns ranged in age from 55 to 69. They were in Liberia in the middle of a a civil war, knowing the risk, because they wanted to help the people who were in need. They were engaged in welfare relief, relief work. 
And over a course of two days, through a conspiracy, five of them were killed. And so because it's the 20th anniversary, the Time magazine gave an update. And the update was entitled this. Why the murder of five American nuns will go unavenged. And the article explains with some offense that they know at least some of the people who are involved in the killing. But the statute of limitations has passed or it's politically inexpedient for the U.S. to demand the punishment or to try and, and, and uh, relocate them in the U.S. to the go to court. So the U.S. has given up any pursuit. And the F, one of the FBI special agent who was in charge of the investigation for many years said this. If you kill our citizens, it doesn't matter if it takes us 20 years. We will never give up. This is the message we must send. There's still got to be accountability for their actions. And we've missed that opportunity. Let's ignore the fact that these nuns were Americans. Because that doesn't really count especially for anything. They were nuns serving God. And there was a quarter million other Liberians that were killed around that same time. But let's focus on this. The title of this article says, The death, the murder of the nuns will go unavenged. There's got to be some kind of accountability. Oh, their murder will not go unavenged. Revelation chapter 11 says it, it won't. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. And a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Their murder may go unavenged in this life. But God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And their murder, God has noted, it won't go unavenged. They will be rewarded in heaven with glory, as will all of God's faithful martyrs and their enemies. God will deal with them also. This is his word. So God's word to those who face persecution and his word to us who care about those who face persecution is this. He's attentive. He's watching over it. The, Turkey, the martyrs in Turkey were killed five years ago. Enough time hasn't passed for us to see the God take care of that yet. Sometimes God takes his time to work things out. But I close with another story that's a little bit older than 30 years, than five years, a story that's about 40 years old. Wang Ziming was a pastor among the Miao people group in China. Not at all famous, just a local pastor of a local church. And about 40 years ago, the government arrested him and his wife and his children. But they let the wife and children go, but they arrested him. And they held a denunciation meeting. It was during the time of the Cultural Revolution. Now, the ironic thing about Wang Ziming is that he had tried to cooperate with the Three Self Church. He was one of the few in the 50s that had cooperated through Christian pastors. But during the Cultural Revolution, there were 21 leaders in his province who were captured by the police detained, sent to camps, denounced, or beaten. 1969, he was arrested. 1973, he was executed publicly, 
Well, he was put on trial publicly in a stadium in front of 10,000 people. He was found guilty. The verdict was passed before he was even brought there for public. And then he was brought off and he was killed. God says that the church will get beat around the edges, but the church will survive. God says that he'll empower these witnesses for their ministry. God says that they won't die unless it's his time. God says that he will vindicate them. He will vindicate those who die for him. And he will avenge their deaths. After the Cultural Revolution, the central government realized, well, the Miao people would not let the central government forget the injustice that had been done to Pastor Wang Ziming. So now, as it happens... Pastor Wang Zingming is the only Chinese martyr of the Cultural Revolution to have a monument erected at his gravesite by the government, acknowledging his sacrifice for the people of China. In 1998, he was also one of the 10 20th century martyrs selected to have a statue in his honor in Westminster Abbey in London. There were 10 statues representative of all the martyrs from the 20th century. There were more martyrs in the 20th century, some estimates have it, than in all the previous 19th centuries since Jesus had died. And 10 of them were represented in the Westminster Abbey among martyrs of the faith, the statues. And Wang Ziming was one of them. But here's the real fulfillment of the promise. Not the honor from the Westminster Abbey. Not the honor from the Chinese government. But here's the real fulfillment of God's promises. When Wang Ziming was arrested, there were 3,000 Christians in his county. By 1980, there were 12,000. And now there's over 30,000 and 100 places of worship. God said, they may beat the church around its edges, but the church will persevere. The church will survive and it will thrive. God empowers his witnesses for their testimony. They may die, but only once their task is done. And once they've died, God will avenge their deaths. Wang Zeming's blood was the watered the soil from which the church of China sprung. Not just him, but many others. This is the hope of the martyrs, that God sees, that God preserves so long as his time is available, that when they die, God notes, God avenges, and God brings glory out of their suffering. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for those who are currently in situations in countries where they're under oppression and suffering. We ask for your grace and your promises to be fulfilled in their lives. We pray for ourselves that we might think concretely of ways that we can stand by them in their sorrow and in their struggle. But all of this, Father, we thank you for your promise that you remain sovereign, you remain just, and you honor those who honor you. May your name be exalted in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.